0: Hello! Welcome to the latest episode of British History, Royals, Rebels, and Romantics, the podcast for people who understand that history shows us what's possible for us in our lives today. I'm Carol Ann Lloyd, your host and tour guide as we travel back in time, We're shaking up history to look at the stories that don't always make the history books, to consider famous and infamous characters in new and interesting ways, and to look for all the things that we share, even when we're living in different times and places. I hope you enjoy this journey through the royals, rebels, and romantics of Britain. Now, let's explore history together. You know me personally or not. If you're listening to this podcast, you're probably not surprised to hear that I love The Six Wives of Henry VIII. I loved seeing the new musical Six in London and in New York. I love the television specials. I fell in love with history and the Tudors and began my obsession with Anne Boleyn, watching the BBC production from back in the 70s rebroadcast on PBS in the United States. I am a big Six Wives fan. It makes sense then that I wrap up my focus on books by looking up books about the Six Wives of Henry VIII. I decided to choose a book for each wife. The publication dates span more than a hundred years with the earliest book published in 1896 and the most recent in 2014. Even 2014 feels like a long time ago so I might have my next project identified. My criteria was that the book focus on the wives instead of that husband. He makes appearances, of course, and inserts his larger-than-life body and personality into the books, just as he did into the marriages. But for the most part, Henry is placed in a supporting role, the husband that brings this fascinating group of women together. So let's meet the six wives through six authors' views of them. Amy License, The Six Wives and Many Mistresses of Henry VIII, The Women's Stories. Amy License examines each of the six wives in detail. Where her book stands out, apart from the others, is her focus on the mistresses. Contrary to the commonly held perception that Henry VIII was a bit of a prude and had only a handful of mistresses, License maintains that Henry had several mistresses and was simply good at covering his tracks. We know about Bessie Blunt, and Mary Boleyn, not because they were the only ones, but because they had unique experiences. Bessie Blunt bore the king a son, and he met and fell in love with and married Mary Boleyn's sister. Otherwise, license says, we might not know as much about either one of them either. So what does that mean for Catherine of Aragon? It means she spent more time than we thought, knowing her husband was sleeping with other women. That means Catherine was dealing with the knowledge during all those tragic lost pregnancies. License looks carefully at another event in Catherine's marriage to show us a more complicated side of Henry's first wife. Early in the marriage, Catherine becomes pregnant and then in January 1510 loses the baby at about seven months. When her stomach remained round and full, Catherine allowed herself to be convinced she was still pregnant with the other twin. She went into confinement only to emerge in public three months later with no baby, but several weeks pregnant. So either she had sex with doctors telling her that it might endanger the pregnancy and the church expressing clear rules against having sex during pregnancy, or she knew she wasn't pregnant and actively deceived her father, her people, and possibly her husband. License gives us a version of Catherine who was willing to take the necessary steps to make things happen. She was devout, she was a loving wife, and she was going to do anything she could to make sure she and Henry had a successful marriage and a son. Karen Lindsay, divorced, beheaded, survived. Lindsay's book is a self-proclaimed feminist reinterpretation of Henry's Wives So, of course, I'm looking at her with descriptions of Anne Boleyn. After all, Anne Boleyn is the one most often labeled as a feminist. Lindsay applies her desire to open up our interpretation to all the wives, considering them not as victims or homewreckers, but as lively, intelligent women doing their best to survive in a dangerous court and married to the most dangerous member of that court. Lindsay examines the way Anne Boleyn caught Henry and catches her us up in her spell and won't let go. Anne Boleyn is the most well-known, recognizable, loved, and hated of all the wives. Her marriage to the king lasted just about three years, but it's the time leading up to that where so many of the controversies arise. Lindsay shares a version of Anne Boleyn as a woman who was approached by the most powerful man in the country— who wants her to go to bed with him. He is stunned when she says no. She tries to walk away. He pursues her. She cannot escape from his lust, so she turns it into a way of gaining power for herself. She was not the leader in Henry's actions to find a new wife after Catherine was unable to bear him a son. She is unable to escape his power, so she decides to protect herself. Lindsay describes Anne as ultimately successful even though she is sacrificed on Henry's altar to himself. Quote, like the falcon she chooses as her emblem, Anne was a wild creature, used, curtailed, but never truly tamed. She was a sexual woman whose vitality belonged only to herself. For years, Henry tried vainly to control that vitality. Finally, unable to mold it to his purposes, he killed her. Sarah Titler. Tudor Queens and Princesses. This one was published in 1896. It's certainly a throwback. Published more than 100 years ago. For a bit of context, Titler's book, The Gracious, The Life of Her Most Gracious Majesty, The Queen, was written about her queen, Victoria. Titler refers regularly to one of the benchmark publications about women in power, Agnes Strickland's Lives of the Queens of England published in 1840, Titler provides us an opportunity to see the way these remarkable women have been seen through history. Titler includes chapters on Elizabeth Tudor, Margaret Beaufort, Elizabeth of York, Margaret Tudor, and Mary Tudor, Henry VIII's Mothers and Sisters. It ends with a chapter on Queen Mary I, the first-crowned Queen of England. In between, she gives us a profile of the six wives. In discussing Jane Seymour, Tytler points out that Henry VIII was remarkably unable to learn from his experience, once again marrying a wife's lady-in-waiting. She points out the unseemliness of Jane's marrying the king so quickly after the violent death of Anne Boleyn. But Titler also raises the question of how much of Jane's decision was a response to quote, a royal tyrant's despotic will as well as the dread of losing his fleeting favor. This way of explaining Jane's willingness to become betrothed to the king the day after his previous wife's death and to marry him before two weeks passed more understanding and perhaps makes Jane a little more sympathetic. Overall, Tytler is extremely sympathetic to Jane Seymour, even repeatedly describing her as beautiful, an attitude not shared by her contemporaries. Tytler reinforces the notion of Jane being being Henry's favorite and most loved wife by reminding us of his wish to be buried alongside her. Whether she was really his favorite wife or just died before she outlived his affection is something Titler doesn't consider. Alison Weir, The Six Wives of Henry VIII. Alison Weir is a popular and prolific writer about Tudor times. Weir has stated that, as she continues to research, she might have drawn different conclusions from those reached in her earlier works. So she might not write today, as she did in this particular book published in 1991, quote, thus we will see that Catherine of Aragon was a staunch but misguided woman of principle, Anne Boleyn an ambitious, adventurous, with a penchant for vengeance. Jane Seymour, a strong-minded matriarch in the making. Anne of Cleves, a good-humored woman who jumped at the chance of independence. Catherine Howard, an empty-headed wanton. Okay, I really have a problem with that description. And Catherine Parr, a godly matron who was nevertheless all too human when it came to a handsome rogue. I include this book and that summary of the wives because the determination to flatten the personalities and complexities of those women and reduce them into near stereotypical and sometimes fully stereotypical descriptions has shaped our understanding of the six wives for years. The one description that allows for a wife to be interesting as a human being is that of Anne of Cleves. So let's see how she's portrayed here. Where does it embrace the notion that Anne of Cleves was actually ugly and that Holbein cunningly misrepresented her and that her ugliness meant Henry VIII hated her on sight? That conclusion disregards the contemporary descriptions of the first meeting with Henry dressing up as a lowly messenger to surprise his future bride, surprise his future bride bursting in on her and trying to kiss her. Anne thought the guy dressed as a lowly messenger was a lowly messenger and recoiled from an attempt to be kissed by a stranger. Henry took this personally, was horribly offended, and never forgave her. By not including this version of the first meeting, Weir reduces Anne to her looks. She does recognize her good sense in accepting Henry's terms when he decides to end the marriage. Anne was able to flatter the king about her personal loss in no longer being his wife while happily accepting the new role he offered her. Weir describes her conduct following Henry's next marriage as exemplary, and it enabled Anne to remain in Henry's favor until his death. Lady Antonia Fraser, the Wives of Henry VIII Lady Antonia Fraser has lofty British credentials. She is a member of the Order of the Companions of Honor, Dame Commander of the Most Excellent Order of the British Empire, and a fellow of the Royal Society of Literature. She's a very well-respected author of biographies and other historical books, as well as novels and detective fiction. In taking on the stories of the wives of Henry VIII, she adopts a generally sympathetic view. She shares some of the less attractive features of the women, but with such fairness that it makes them more complete. Taking on the stereotypes that have shaped early discussions, including betrayed wife temptress, and so on. Frazier counters that, quote, there are elements of truth, of course, in all of these evocative descriptions, yet each one of them ignores the complexity and variety of the individual character. In their different ways and for different reasons, nearly all these women were victim, but they were not willing victims. On the contrary, A remarkably high level of strength and also of intelligence was displayed by them at a time when their sex traditionally possessed little of either. How does Fraser treat the youngest woman in the story, who had so little time to develop or display a personality? Catherine Howard was from a lesser branch of the Howard family tree, and she had been brought up without the advantages of a good education or good associations. When she came to court and Henry fell for her, it was Catherine's entire family who decided the past indiscretions, whatever they were, should be left in the past. The king was besotted with his young bride and showered her with affection and gifts. Catherine was not in love with the king in a romantic way, most likely, according to Fraser, but rather felt a bedazzled reverence for him and a gratitude for his generosity. The oft-reported image of Catherine Howard and Anne of Cleves dancing together while the king stomped off to bed sums up the time. Henry was old, his new wife was young, and he was not a good companion for her. She would have been better off sticking with partying with Anne of Cleves, but unfortunately, she entered into some kind of relationship with Thomas Culpepper. And that letter ending Yours, as long as life endures, Catherine, was enough to do her in. As Frazier points out, Catherine Howard might have been a teenager at her death and was certainly no older than 20 or 21. It was a tragic ending to a tragic life. David Lodes, The Six Wives of Henry VIII My final selection is the only one written by a man. I've read and really enjoyed several of Lodes' books. Lodz was a professor at several British universities and was a specialist in the Tudor era, writing extensively about individuals, families, and religion. He even wrote Tudors for Dummies. He addresses Henry VIII's reluctance to have a female heir, shared by most of his people as the compelling and real problem of the time and the driving force behind all those marriages. Lodes sees each marriage as a political and personal statement. Statements that become less personally powerful in the king's final years. By 1543, Henry VIII was enormously fat and in terrible health. He was devastated by Catherine Howard's betrayal. It's not clear how he selected his final wife. As Lodes points out, She certainly didn't seek the king's attention, as she was planning to marry Thomas Seymour. But the king had other plans, and Catherine Parr agreed once more to marry for duty. Catherine Parr was the most experienced wife to marry Henry VIII. He was her third husband. She wrote to Thomas Seymour she felt God had directed her to marry the king, and she was determined to do God's will. She had strong evangelical views, and she was willing to discuss and even debate them with the king. She was the first queen of England to publish a book while queen, Prayers or Meditations. She also wrote a book with more radical religious views, Lamentations of a Sinner, but did not publish that until after Henry's death. Her religious beliefs concerned Gardner and Norfolk, who wanted to nurture Henry's still Catholic-leaning inclinations. They tried to turn the king against Catherine, but she found out she deferred to Henry's wishes and his counsel and rescued their relationship. Henry's confidence in Catherine was so strong that he named her regent while he tried one more time to conquer France. She was the first wife he had named regent since Catherine of Aragon. Lodz sees a change in Catherine after her time as regent, with her views becoming stronger and her religious beliefs becoming more pronounced. By Christmas of 1546, the king was so ill, that Catherine spent the holiday with his children at Greenwich while Henry remained at Westminster. He died at Whitehall in January 1547. Catherine was finally able to marry for love, which she did just six months after the king's death. I get the feeling that Henry VIII would describe his life with himself at the center as the sun, and other people rotating around him, including these six women. But I think that, in fact, the women had the real light, the intelligence, the courage, the determination, the compassion, and the abilities that created the power of Henry VIII's reign. They were not just the power behind the throne. They were the power of the throne. Thank you for joining me to consider books about the six wives of Henry VIII. I'd love to hear what your favorites are. (music) Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please share with a friend. Do send any questions or comments. I'd love to hear from you where we should explore next. And please subscribe and leave a review. I'd really appreciate it. I'm so glad we could explore history together. Till next time.